Welcome to Core Parenting Conversations with Kaylee. My name is Kaylee Kukla, and I've spent the last decade supporting children and families with challenging behaviors. As a mom of two, I appreciate how overwhelming and exhausting parenthood can often be. So I'm taking all of my book knowledge and combining it with real life experiences to change the dialogue around parenting. We'll have powerful conversations that always include practical tips so you can walk away feeling inspired and empowered to make simple yet impactful changes in your family's life. Let's dive in. Today's core parenting conversation is with the teen whisperer, Kirsten Kovave. I'm so excited for this conversation because as a parent to young children, I find the days can feel so long and often so repetitive that I find myself asking, am I getting anywhere? (laughs) Is this working? Kirsten brings me back to center and reminds me of the long game. We are building a relationship that can stand the test of time. Because before we know it, the quality of our relationship is going to be the only influence we have with our older adolescents and teens. Let's dive into this conversation. Hello, and welcome to another Core Conversation with Kaylee. I have a very exciting guest for you today. She has become a dear friend of mine. It's Kirsten Kobabe. She is the teen whisperer over there on Instagram, which is how we connected. And what I find really incredible about her, well, a lot of things, but one of the things is her mission is to really educate people about this transformational and I think widely misunderstood developmental age and stage. So I take on the early childhood, the littles, the toddlers, school age kids, and then she just sees us through that adolescent and teenage years, which is great for me as well. She has social media platforms, individual coaching and courses. And so I am so thrilled to have her here today and dive in to the world that is teenage. Welcome, Kirsten. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Kaylee. My uh, initial twin. My like, I'm always just love your sweet name. And of course, just love everything you do. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Well, what I love about our work and how it coincides, and we talk about this all the time, is how early childhood lays this really sweet, important foundation for what's coming, this adolescent and these teenage years. And while I always remind parents, I'm like, parent for the child you have in that moment, don't fast forward 10 years or five years and project these big fears. I think it can be really helpful when we're in a calm moment to just think about our hopes for what our relationship will look like in 10 years. And are we doing now? Is that fostering what we want? Right? Totally. We do talk about this all the time. I love it. Time, I know. (laughs) This episode is made possible by Kaylee's core community. The core community membership is a community of people committed to intentional parenting through the power of relationships. 
all members gain access to The Vault, which has over 20 workshops on topics ranging from parental triggers to whining, with a new one added every single month on so many various topics. Members also get workbooks, journals, inventories, books for children, and a weekly Q&A with Kaylee all within a private website and a private Facebook group where we share weekly commitments, parenting wins, encouragement, and solidarity for those tough parenting moments. Learn more at www.kayleekukla.com backslash core, C-O-R, which stands for Centered on Relationships. The link is in the show notes. Now back to this core conversation. So what we want to focus on today, I think you and I kind of spitballed some ideas around and we've talked about so much, but I think it really is, we keep coming back to this idea of trust-based parenting and how important that is first foundationally to trust ourselves and then trust our littles, but how important and critical is that trust when they get older? when we have less influence and control. And so can you talk about what that looks like as kids start growing and separating from their primary caregiver base? Yeah, I'll probably use the word parenting a lot, but I might throw in caretaking there just to include the parent. I mean, the, you know, the neighbors, the teachers, the aunts, the uncles, the people that are supporting all of us together grow, but we'll probably use parents a lot. I think even touching on what you just said is even this concept that we can be in the present and parent for the child now, knowing that that is that foundational piece for later. Because so much of what I support parents and caretakers in with their teens is a lot of the same stuff that you do. It's just this different stage and the context might be a little bit different. So trusting that you're already doing that if you're listening and you have a little that this is the the preparation work. And a lot of it's going to be really similar as they get older, which we'll talk more about. I think it can feel scarier though. The stakes feel higher. And oftentimes they are because, you know, whereas with my toddler, I can pick them up and move them out of an unsafe situation. You can't do that with a 16-year-old. <laughs> they're heavy, first no. of all. And second of all, you're not around them all the time like you are when they're three or even six. We're around them a lot more than when they're 16. So, you know, and I can talk about what it looks like early on, but when do you see that shift happening and how do parents reconcile that and wrestle with that as the kiddos get older? Yeah, it's a big one because we think teenage years, it's like 13 to... 19. It's like, actually, sometimes it's nine. You know, it's sometimes it's 10. These shifts that we see can happen a little bit earlier, depending on the child, of course. And what I mean by that is more about the sort of, I'm my own person or the pulling away or the friendships really mattering and these things that can be a big change for the reasons that you said. You can't pick up your 16-year-old. Your child's not home as much when they get older, even at 10 sometimes. I mean, it's different than when they're 16 and driving, but certainly it's a there's a progression. And so, yeah, how do we have that influence? How do we trust we're doing enough? These are big questions. And so, yeah, what we do when they're little is impactful. It's similar work as they get older. And what it often looks like is instead of picking them up and being like, here's what we're doing, I've got you, whatever. We're having these conversations at dinner or in the car or when your teen is 
open to a conversation. It's nice to kind of ask permission about this. Sometimes like, Hey, you're entering high school or middle school. I want to do like a check-in and make sure we've got this and we're on the same page. Cause I want it to be great for you. I want it to be great for me because they're in this new phase where they can actually have those conversations about homework and friends or difficult situations. And so we get to kind of, we get to really join them in this different verbal stage where they're more mature. They're looking at the world, having maybe deeper, more complex feelings, thoughts, and questions. And so it's, it's a lot of doing the work beforehand, before the party happens, before the driver's license, before the difficult relationship or friendship. How do we kind of prepare for this by doing a check-in, whether it's weekly or yearly or every six months, depending on what's going on in the family. Okay. So it's so interesting you bring up the check-in because I talked a lot about today. I did like an intro to gentle parenting course, mostly in the context of early childhood development, but definitely that brain development continues on as we know through the early twenties. So I talked a lot about for parents checking in with themselves and just hey, what's really going on here? What is this signaling for me? What's coming up for me? What needs have I not met? Where is this coming from? And I think, you know, I was saying that's a practice. It's not just a switch that gets flipped one day. So I want to lean in because I love the check-in practice. I've developed one for myself. But having once been a person that did not have that, was on autopilot a lot of the times, I think this is a really interesting concept to start when, okay, so now they're starting to separate. How do you have, like, what does that conversation look like? What does it feel like? And then traditionally, we think of teenagers as being prickly or adolescents as being prickly. So how do you find those times or how do you seek those out with your child? And it's going to be different for every family, of course, because some families have been doing these check-ins and have this kind of open dialogue and other families, this might be new right now or kind of a big change. And I'm such a believer that no matter what we can enter this field and kind of baby step our way toward it. Um, a lot of for teenagers, and we'll go back to the self-checking because I think that's huge for a lot of the teens. It's that asking permission to, or is this a good time for you? I'd love to check in and you're not in trouble. It's like, front load these things. So they're not scared. Right. It's like, sometimes teenagers are like, Oh no, my mom wants to talk to me. I must've done something wrong. You know, this is often how we feel just in our whole, our culture, even if your home is so (laughs) understanding. I was going to interject right there. School comes to mind. It's like having to go to the principal's office. I will never forget. This is just interject a funny story for listeners in high school, my senior year. And I was Kirsten, I was the straight A student. I was the golden child, you know, all honors classes. Like I was that kid. Okay. And someone comes in and says, Hey, you're wanted in the vice principal's office in one of my classes. And I was the dread. That dread, I'm yeah. like, why? So I get up, it's, you know, an office assistant, like students appear. And so we walk out of the classroom. I'm like, what did I do? Like, why? And they go, oh, you're in the top 20. They need your photograph for the yearbook. And I was like, what? You know, it was this accolade. (laughs) I had no idea I was getting. It was this recognition. I thought surely I was being called in to be reprimanded. Is it a cultural thing? Is it, I don't, a systematic thing. I don't know what it is, but it's so ingrained that if we're being called out, we're in trouble. (laughs) 
Totally. And you were a quote, good kid, kid, right? It's like, what? And think about the kids that maybe aren't traditionally quote, good kids. It's like, who? And I mean, that's a whole other topic of why these behaviors come and what the needs are. But yes, for even for someone who's kind of doing fine, culturally or speaking, or in our traditional mindset, it's like, that can be scary. And so it's true for kids too. No matter how great your relationship is, it's sometimes nice to just know what to expect instead of just assuming your kid's fine with it and they'll talk to you about anything. It's like, what if we set it up, asked permission, offered a few times if that's more appropriate and really kind of framed it as like, we're on the same team here. We're entering new territory. Let's design it. Let's design it together. So it's easy breezy as much as possible. I love that curious. I'm just, I'm feeling the energy that curious open. It's super non-judgmental. Like I really want, and that eagerness, right? That eagerness to be like, I just really want to understand what this is like for you. And if now is not a good time, I totally get it. When would be a good time? Exactly. This goes so far for teenagers. Cause if we think about teenagers all day long, they're asking if they can go to the bathroom, that they have all this homework they don't really care about that they have to do, you know, all this stuff. And yes, they have freedom. We see teenagers like, bopping around downtown and stuff. It's very tiny compared to how much they're actually being told to do and how structured their days are. Not to mention how early most teenagers are waking up. I'm reading a really great book right now, all about the newest research of this. And basically it's showing us that a teenager waking up at five or six is like an adult waking up at three, I think, something oh. like that. So that's what they're feeling, right? And then they go from a dark room to a dark outside to inside at school. And so they're not even getting the nature wake up cues of sunshine, right? So there's so many elements to this of their day being just not supernatural. If we think back a few generations. I was thinking artificial (laughs) came to mind. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Artificial and created during the days of factory working. And so it made sense way back, maybe. (laughs) And now it makes no sense. So all these pieces and it's just like, oh yeah, my kid's probably tired. They might be you know, stressed out. And so if we can be like a soft space for them, doesn't mean passive, like the, you know, what you shared recently, doesn't mean passive. It means like working together, collaborating, being curious, being supportive, because that's where we're really going to get somewhere with them. And that also, of course, keeps the door open for when stuff gets hard or they have a question and they need some guidance. Yeah, I think that, so what this practice looks like for me with younger children, and I shared with you on social this past week, I believe, on one of your posts, that I'm starting to see this with my seven and a half year old. You know, eight really does mark the end. Like there's a cognitive shift, a hormonal, emotional shift that happens around that eighth year that they leave early childhood. And so he's just at seven and a half, and I'm starting to feel that shift happen. And so the noticing check-ins have become a really powerful tool. And what I've noticed with him now is like one of us will usually stay in the kitchen to start cleaning up dinner. And then the other one will walk to the bath, to the bathroom to help. We have a four-year-old too, to help him, you know, get started. And my eldest often will stay back with the parent who's in the kitchen. And that's when he wants to talk. And so I'm thinking in my head already. So this is for the parents who are listening of like, they're in this transitional stage now of like, that could be a really sweet practice just to cultivate naturally with him of like, hey, right after dinner, while we're transitioning into the bedtime routine, that's a really sweet, precious time to just download about the day, right? Yeah. 
I love that so much. And it's naturally occurring. This is not any prompting we've done. This is not contrived. No, no, it's just him. But then cultivating that awareness of saying, hey, do you want to stay back with me and help? Or do you want to sit down while I wash the dishes? It doesn't have to turn into a chore time. Right. You know, <laughs> it would be nice if he's willing to help. But my, my main motivation, my priority there is to cultivate that check-in with him because, yeah, he's only seven and a half, but we're laying this foundation for what's to come. <laughs> totally. Modeling it, experiencing it, and that foundation of as he remembers these moments or experiences them as he grows. It's like that probably feels sweet and soft and supportive for him too. And how amazing to have that. And for parents that are like, well, what would I even say? Or, you know, this sort of stuff. It's like, it's simple things like, what's that like for you? I noticed this. I wonder about this, you know, very just gentle, open, not about getting something done. Like you said, it doesn't have to be about the chores. We don't need to ask about homework necessarily. (laughs) You know, what's that like for you? Even especially as they get older, as a, as a kind of side note to this, when you're having these conversations in the car or in the kitchen or wherever it is, you can also get curious about what's really hard for them. You know, our culture really steers away from when kids say, I hate this, or I, I wish I didn't have to do this. We're like, hey, stop. You know, and really it's like, what a perfect time to go, oh, tell me more about what you hate. Oh, that does sound hard. Ugh. That makes sense. Yeah. Because this is the time it's seen as complaining and entitled in the teen years and maybe all the years we've gotten this message before many of us. And it's really like, oh, what if actually what's happening is their brain is developing, all these new pathways are opening, they're tired, they're stressed, but they're also, their identity is like blossoming, blooming, unfolding, their interdependence, their autonomy, their who am I is happening before our eyes. And so part of that in developing our values and our personality is like, what do I like and what don't I like? So that's what I think of when complaining comes up. I'm like, yes, we got so much to work with here. It's amazing. And so it's a total reframe. It feels really backwards for a lot of us. And once we do it, it can feel really good and really connecting, really supportive. This episode is made possible by Kaylee's Core Community. The Core Community membership is a community of people committed to intentional parenting through the power of relationships. All members gain access to The Vault, which has over 20 workshops on topics ranging from parental triggers to whining, with a new one added every single month on so many various topics. Members also get workbooks, journals, inventories, books for children, and a weekly Q&A with Kaylee, all within a private website and a private Facebook group where we share weekly commitments, parenting wins, encouragement, and solidarity for those tough parenting moments. Learn more at www.kayleekukla.com backslash core, C-O-R which stands for Centered on Relationships. The link is in the show notes. Now back to this core conversation. Okay, so I'm imagining, because a lot of what I hear is the complaining, and I just talked about this today. We're so in sync all the time. Whenever we talk, I love it. I love it. (laughs) But this idea of like lack of gratitude. And, you know, my message to parents was like, look, your child does not owe you gratitude for taking care of them because, in fact, children are wired to be 
expecting to be taken care of. That's like our mammalian attachment system is like, hey, you're my protector, you're my provider. So this complaining, I think a lot of parents personalize it and it feels like they're ungrateful. It feels like they're entitled. And so what a huge shift, even for littles, but especially in those teenage years where it can get kind of angsty and maybe they're talking about some really strong opinions about some triggering topics. Yeah. You know, because now all of a sudden they're aware of like the hot button topics and the politics and current events and all this stuff. So when they start complaining about the teacher or about the homework or about their friends, instead of trying to tell them why they're wrong... Believe, believe them. them and be like, hey, you're allowed to not like it. Help me understand. Yeah. What's this like for you? Whoa. Wow. That is hard. Wow. But that requires us to suspend our own judgments. Yes. So that's like all the things, right? It's the self-check-in. It's even the trust. When you were saying little ones are wired to expect to be cared for, think about the trust. Like we kind of started in trust. That is full trust. And so can we meet them in that? In their trust in us. Yeah. (laughs) I know that came as you were talking about that. I'm like, there's the trust. Like they are just are born with it. Their babies just laying there and trusting someone will hold them, nurse them, listen to them. And so, yeah, as we can do this, meet them in these places that grows trust. And then if we're noticing we can't, there's where that reminder of, oh, maybe there's something here for me. This is really uncomfortable. What is this signaling? Yeah. Yeah. So we're able to meet our child and ourselves with curiosity. It's like the powerful one-two punch right there for self-growth, I think. (laughs) Very. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And the quote that's coming to me is from Dr. Shafali, where she says, it's something about the, basically being a good parent is more about checking in with your inner child than it is anything else. And it's not because we're neglecting the outer child that's growing up before us. It's just what's happening here. Cause that's the reflection. That's the energetics that our kids are feeding off of. Energy is the first language and kids are so tuned into their caretakers. So they know what's up with us. Another talk I did with someone recently, they're saying we cannot, they fully believe we cannot keep any secret from a child. Was it you who said in one of our previous conversations that our kids have a PhD in us? Yes. And I didn't make that up. Someone else said that. And I can't remember who. I wish I could. I'm sorry to whoever you are. We know you're out there. So if it's you, please let us know so we can credit you. Because that has stuck with me. That has just stuck with me through the ages because I'm like, they they read me like a book. (laughs) Whether they want to or not, whether it's conscious or not, it's just so there. It's more of that hard wire for safety and survival, really. Yes. I mean, it can go beyond this, of course, hopefully, but that's, I think the roots of it is like this person, what are their eyes doing? I mean, it starts in breastfeeding. If you were a breastfeeder, of course, playtime when you're little, it's like all these moments, they're just like scanning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How are we doing here? How's this person doing? Am I okay? They're okay. I'm okay. Right. And that doesn't stop. That doesn't stop because they turn eight, because they exit early childhood. And it's so interesting because I can remember as a teenager when that started becoming conscious thought for me of reading my parents and knowing, okay, now is a good time to ask them. Now isn't a right. good time. And it, I guess maybe there was, the motivation wasn't totally manipulation, but it really was that I was so in tune with my parents that I knew, okay, I'm more likely to get a yes 
now. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Exactly. And no one told you that. It's not like your parents said, Hey, if you want a yes, here's the, you know, you just knew. And yeah, it's, it's really, I think manipulation. I know that's not what you were saying, but since it came up, it's like, it's all about getting our needs met. That's what we're all trying to do. Right. And we're wired to do that. So it's not this conscious. I tell people, I'm like, look, do you know how gifted these con artists, like truly con artists are where they're like millions. I was just watching Inventing Anna on Netflix. I was like, dang, girls got some mad skill, you know? Skills. <laughs> like, wow. But that is not, our children are not that. I mean, that's a very small percentage of the population. They are literally trying to get needs met. And most people, that is, you know, 99.9% of the people, that's what's going on there. And so I think depersonalizing it and staying open and curious is huge for children. And that helping someone exactly and supporting them and getting their needs met, whether it's by giving or co-regulating or being curious that that actually supports them in finding their path and learning the path to getting their needs met in a safe and healthy way, in a balanced way. When we ignore and go fend for yourself, that's where it can be hard, especially really early in when you're developing. And so sometimes we think, oh, it'll be enabling if I help them. And really it's like, let's walk side by side. They know they've got someone with them and you guys can figure it out together. That's where we learn skills that help us to do this later in a more balanced way than whatever her name is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I haven't quite finished it. I'm not sure if I'm going to. I'm like, this is a really interesting watch. I don't know if I'm up for this. It can be intense. At the shows. end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. But what came up and what often comes up for me when we're talking about curiosity is also this idea and walking with them side by side is this idea of collaboration, which also takes a lot of trust. And I think one of the main hangups, I've noticed this, and I'm wondering if you have as well, with parents is what's coming up for them is a lot of fear, which is where we started. And it's almost like either we're not acknowledging the fear in ourselves, so then we can't verbalize it with our children and share that with them, or fear's coming up and we don't want to let our child know. We don't have a good feeling about this. But I have found just in my experience, I'm wondering what you have to say to that. But part two of it is I have found with even my seven-year-old, I can say things like, okay, you want X and Y. Here's my concern. Or this is what I'm thinking. Or this is what I'm not understanding. Help me understand. Or how are we going to address this concern? Totally. Right, but that takes, is that, I don't know, what do you find? Do you think that's more of just an unawareness of parents that there's a fear root or is it that we want to not let on that we are feeling some uneasiness or trepidation or fear in situations? It could absolutely be either of those, like combined with this culture we've been brewing for a few generations of not being able to or not choosing to be uncomfortable or in the big feelings. Like if we think about a simple example of that is like a child says like, I had a nightmare and a parent's like, don't worry, it's just a dream. This is kind of what we've done in all the ways. Like it ripples out into every little crevice and crack. And instead of, for simple example, again, that one, it's like, I had a nightmare as a caretaker, we could say, 
oh, what was it? Mm, what happened? You know, again, that curiosity piece. So I think it could be both of the things you said, either of the things, plus this just avoidance that we have going on with things that are uncomfortable, anger, sadness, jealousy, fear, all this stuff. And it's, you know, part of how we're wired because it's survival stuff. And now we've kind of moved beyond that to some degree. (laughs) And we're in a different place where now we're like, what's the anxiety is coming up. I mean, and I was thinking of this earlier when you were talking and I'm glad it's coming up again is if we've had difficult experiences in our own childhoods, and if they weren't allowed to come out in our teen years, or if they didn't come out, they're still there. And so sometimes that comes out with fear of fear or stress or heart racing. You know, it it can look like so many things. And so part of what I think is happening is sometimes we're, our body's remembering something from before. We're not sure the new path yet, how to handle this, because we've been in this one kind of parenting, this one dimensional (laughs) parenting for a while now. Yeah. I think it's really empowering to be able to vocalize And what it does too, I want my children to listen to their intuition. I'm a big like gut follower. And the few times I don't follow my gut, I'm like, oh, I should have. It was telling me something I was right on, you know, I'm following that intuition. And the only way we can do that, I think, is first validate that in our children. Like when they come to you and say, I had a bad dream and say, oh, it's fine. It's fine. You know, but validate their experience and also model that of, hey, I'm unsure about this, or I have a funny feeling. I have a gut feeling. You know, I'm, I have some questions about this, and I'm not saying no, but I'm also not saying yes until I get more information, right? Exactly. And that's such amazing language if we think about teenagers, because what comes up is, you know, a party or getting in the car as your friends are starting to drive. And it's like, okay, cool. This is great. And (laughs) here's what I'm concerned about, or here's, here's what could be around the corner for these high school years. I want to make sure you have all the information to make awesome choices as I know you're capable of, you know, really kind of giving the benefit of the doubt, but also being in it and going, okay, like, and spending the time and the energy in the funk and in the prep work so that when your kid goes out with your friend, then that, you know, you feel good that you've at least had conversations about what's scary, created some plans ahead of time. And at the same time, you have a pretty solid connection going on and you understand the stage and what's going on. And so all those things can actually help to, I think, or at least support, reduce the fear because you're, oh, we got that and we did this and you've, you've connected all these dots because we've done the work. It's, I think fear really tells us that we're just, maybe we missed something or we wish we did something differently or because we don't know what's going to happen and we never know what's going to happen. <laughs> However, we can prepare for some of the circumstances as best we can. And I talk a lot about predictability in early childhood because we know how important predictability is for young children. But really, all of our brains like predictability. None of our brains like I would love to know what's going to happen. You know, I would love (laughs) the crystal ball. I remember thinking that in COVID, like when we were in the midst of like these big, scary moments for some parts and like, what is going to happen in two weeks when the schools say they're going to open, but we're still really unsure about it. You know, the brain does not like (laughs) the unknown. (laughs) We're so uncomfortable with it. And it's a huge change. I think it's a big growth edge that we're in right now, collectively, where it's, you know, from the what ifs to the what is, 
or the, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. So that means anything could happen, which isn't all that bad necessarily. I mean, we can go there. My brain's wired to do that for sure. I'm an Enneagram six. Like all I do is think about worst case scenario. (laughs) So this is like, (laughs) we just practice going, okay, I hear you. I hear you fear. I'm with you. And, and we can decide, is this our story? Someone else's story? I love the what if to what is, because then it really brings us back to now. And and yeah, there's so many tools for the worry, (laughs) worry to wonder. I mean, and it's natural. We do, we want to know what's going to happen. That would be great. It would be super helpful. And how do we make friends with not knowing what's going to happen? It's a lot of, I think, prep work and connection work and present work. I love how it kind of, you know, we brought it all back together to this trust and the trust doesn't happen by accident right? Trust is a series of these little moments, these experiences that we have with someone. That's what really how relational trust is built. Brene Brown, I always go back to her marble jar study of it's the little mar- or, um, analogy of it's the little marbles you put in a jar. And when someone has enough marbles, you know that they're a trustworthy person because they've shown up. It's not the big moments. It's the small moments. You know, it's the in the kitchen, it's in the car. It's when they come to you and say, I have this really hard thing at school and I don't know what to do. And then guiding them to follow themselves, which feels really counterintuitive when you're the adults and they're the child. But what we're doing, right, we're raising awareness of what they already know and what they already feel. Because we feel before we think, <laughs> always. Certainly. It's like the difference between be careful, you know, of course, unless it's like dire situation, you have to move your child, but sliding down a steep slide, it's like, be careful or walking on a little, some sort of banister. It's like, be careful. Or we can say, Oh, what's your plan? what are you going to, you know, what, how do you feel in your body right now? Just, what does this feel like? All that stuff. We could do this in teen years too. Not, Hey, you can never do X, Y, and Z. It's more like, what do you think could go wrong? (laughs) What are you noticing about this? What's your plan for this? Um, and not that that's the whole conversation of worst case scenarios. It's also what's exciting about this. Who's going to be there? You know, stuff like that. We're scaffolding. What's so interesting is that, you know, I just did an intro class today and we talked about executive functions, right? And you're literally scaffolding the executive function of planning ahead and prioritizing and, you know, all of these other, like what could happen, what's most likely to happen, you know, well, what about when this happens or if this happens? And like you said, not all bad things, but what happens if your cell phone dies? What's your plan? Right. You know, are you going to be with a friend who has a phone? Are you going to be by yourself? Like, are, are you comfortable asking to use a phone? That kind of stuff or charger. Yeah. I just think that those kind of things, those prep conversations do help us have more trust, feel safer. And also we're building connection with our child and skills. Totally. It's not like a teenager wakes up and knows how to do the things in the perfect priority or in the same priority as their parent. It's like, we actually need to look at it and go, okay, what works for you? What are your values? Let's look at this. And when they make mistakes, be like, oh yeah, I've been there. Okay. What do we want to do differently? If anything. Yeah, exactly. We're scaffolding. It's we're modeling and part of that collaboration you mentioned. We're in it together because we don't just wake up unless you're super type A and love to clean your room. We don't just wake up knowing when to do what, how to do it, whether we're talking money or homework or cleanliness. It's like, we do need to learn these things. It's not necessarily about age. 
Wow. Well, I love this conversation, Kirsten. Thank you so much for joining me for this and just really highlighting through the ages, the parenting relationship through the ages. I can't encourage parents enough to go to your page, check it out, because it gives me a preview as to what to come. Wow. It validates what I'm doing now. And I think that's the magic sauce, right? Is staying in the present moment and feeling validated and also seeing the big picture goal here. Because <laughs> it's yeah. a long-term investment. For sure. <laughs> Some days. Totally, totally, totally. Thank you for having me. I love, as you know, talking about this. So thank you so, so much. All right. Well, thanks for being here. And y'all, if you want to go check out Kirsten, please go to her page on Instagram at Kirsten Kobabe. I will put her info, her website, her Insta in the show notes, and you can check her out. She's definitely full of pearls of wisdom and encouragement for parents. So thanks so much. And we'll catch you on the next core conversation. Thank you so much for joining Kirsten and I for this core parenting conversation. I always love speaking with Kirsten because she helps me see the big picture of all my efforts in these early informative years. I hope this conversation was as validating and encouraging to you as it was for me. If you'd like to learn more about Kirsten and her resources, I have linked those in the show notes for you. I appreciate you so much joining me this week and all the weeks. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, please write a rating or review or share the episode and tag me on social so I can reshare it. This allows me to commit more time, energy, and resources to creating these conversations for you. And hear me when I say I love creating these conversations for you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Have a wonderful week.